You know, we're in a series right now called Holiday Survival Guide. And we're talking about why did Christ come from heaven to earth? Is it for us to do more or is it us to be more? And every Christmas we come up with a to-do list of all the things we need to do. We've been challenging ourselves to come up with a to-be list. How can I be more joyful, be more patient, be more compassionate? And today in the lighting of the candle relayed to love, what would it look like for us this Christmas to be more loving? To give love toward other people in the same way that God gave love to us at the Christmas season. It's interesting. It's easy to see the kind of love where people love or, or buy gifts for their friends or family. Right? That's, that's natural. That's normal. It's not strange. It's not earth shattering when you love your spouse or when you love your kids or love your friends. But every once in a while you come across a strange love. When you see somebody in your holiday gathering who's really being embittered, really being angry, really being unreasonable, and you see someone else choose not to take offense. And that's a strange love. More than that, someone who loves somebody who's crabby and continues to be crabby, but loves them with grace and patience and kindness. Something strikes you about that. How do you love an enemy like that? How do you love somebody who's so embittered like that? How do you love someone who seems so entitled? How do you love somebody who seems so unthankful? And it strikes you. That this season, I don't want to just try harder to be a little more loving. I need access to the strange kind of love from God that allows me to love the strange people who are in my family. The strange people that are in this world. And here's the amazing thing we're going to discover today as we look at the lives of Abraham and Sarah and how it plays out up until Christmas time is that this idea of giving to strangers is a powerful concept. And what we're going to discover today is that it is a, it may seem strange to give to strangers. But when you give to strangers, it develops a strange kind of love within you. An other centered kind of love an others focused kind of love. And again, not just giving love to those we like, that's easy. To those that believe the way we believe or think the way we think, but people who have strange habits, like Aunt Patty. People who have strange ways of communicating, like sometimes your spouse. People have strange ways of, of thinking about things. How do we treat the stranger? The poor, the needy, the relative with different political beliefs than we do? Will we love Will we belong? When we learn how to give love to strangers, it actually creates a strange type of supernatural love within us. So we're going to look at strange, then stranger, and ultimately strangest. And my hope is that this will give you an opportunity or show you an opportunity that every day is an adventure. Every day, if, if what the Bible says here is true, and I believe it is, every day becomes an adventure of your opportunity to give back to your creator. It's a deep motivation and it changes how we see everyday life and the people we interact with on every day as well. Strange, stranger, and strangers. Let's begin with strange. We open our story and we learn this concept, this concept that ripples through history, but it starts in this moment, is that you are loving God by loving strangers. That's strange. That how we treat fellow mankind, how we treat people who irritate us, whose idiosyncrasies drive us crazy, how we treat the strange among us 
God says, is your opportunity to give and be loving toward me. We'll trace it through history, but let's begin here in Genesis. It says, the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, by the terebinth trees of Mamre. So imagine the trees are here. And it says, God appears, comes down on earth, comes down in history, in the same way he does for Christmas, to have a conversation with Abraham about a promise. A future descendant that will be born to him that will eventually bring peace on earth in two installments, a first coming and a second. But here's what's fascinating. Though it says the Lord appeared to him while he was sitting in the tent door in this area. The next thing it says is, well, how did he appear? Is it, is it a fire? Is it smoke? Is it a vision? Is it an angel? It says, no, no, God appeared as three men. Three strangers. Three human beings appeared. But the author is hinting at us. Don't think those are just men there. One of them is the Lord disguised as a stranger. So how will you treat three strangers coming to your door? How will you treat the three strangers that you don't know yet as God? Abraham, it says, seeing them from afar, ran to them. Oh, my goodness. Strangers, a chance to be hospital, a chance to engage. He doesn't know yet it's God, but he runs toward opportunities to love and be generous toward strangers. God becomes man. Theologians call this a theophanies, but really it's what we know about Christmas. God becomes man. That before Jesus came in a manger, he came and appeared to Abraham so many years earlier. And Abraham runs toward these strangers. Now, this concept developed here will ripple through history. Whether you believe in the Bible or not, whether you believe in Jesus or not. Let me tell you how this teaching from the Bible has changed the world. From this idea that you never know how God might be appearing to you through strangers that message went to India. In India, during the 1800s, women were second-class citizens. The message of Jesus came. As it had elevated women, there's a practice called the suti, that when the, the tribesmen, who had multiple wives usually, usually died, he would be buried, I mean, he'd be laid on some pitch and lit on fire. That was the way they do a ceremony. But his wives, while still living, had to be in the fire with him. And when this idea that how you treat the stranger, how you treat men and women in society needs to be equal, it might be God appearing in either form, that got outlawed. In China, in Greece, where they would take children just born, and that would divide your inheritance in half, so you're worried about your inheritance, so you don't want to have another child. So they would kill their children, even up to age two, they would take and, and place them out in the... To be, in the cold weather to be exposed, to be eaten by wolves. And, and Christians came along and said, wait a second, wait a second. That child matters. Yeah, but he's handicapped. What's he ever going to do? No, that child is loved by God. I want to love God by loving the stranger. And you will see through history, adoption centers started by people who believed this to be true. Senior citizens where the elderly were pushed out of a community. All of a sudden, this ethic of Christianity was weaving through history. And all of a sudden, the handicapped are esteemed. No longer are different races at different levels, but no, we're all made in the image of God. And this ripple affects racism and liberty and freedom for the handicapped, for the widow. And it all began here with this idea that God is appearing as a stranger. And Jesus will pick it up and he will say, whatever you have done, whoever you have loved, wherever you have given, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. Just that one principle. And now imagine what your life would be like if it was possible that when you're sitting around 
the office, when you're sitting around the community, when you're hanging out your family dinner. What if there's a new TV show that came out? It was called Undercover Boss, Undercover Family, it's called. And what if I told you that God was going to appear at your family gathering this Christmas, disguised as a stranger, disguised as inappropriate talking Uncle Bob, who drives you crazy, who irritates you to death, the reason why you try and schedule not going to the family reunion, or the Christmas gathering, what if I told you that while he's being annoying, while he's being frustrated, while your sister-in-law and your mother-in-law, what if I told you there's a possibility that God was undercover as your aunt, as your mother, as your son? You might say, well, God's got a lot of explaining to do because God's behavior is certainly not appropriate. But what if God said, but how you treat the unthankful, the critical, the angry, the irritable, people who have different religious beliefs than you, and people who have different political beliefs than you. Mm-hmm. And what if instead of demonizing them or labeling them, you said, this might be God appearing in undercover family. Wouldn't that change your perspective? If God said, I'm going to watch how you treat this person. I want to reward you. For how you handle it, how you treat the strangers, how you treat me. I know it would change my perspective on a lot of people. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And that's strange. It's strange that giving to strangers is like giving to God. And that idea inspired generosity and equality and elevating of classes and elevating of women and elevating of the handicapped, coming against Hitler and his horrific eugenics that put different people on different stages and they could be killed off. This Christian ethic that began here was very, very strange, and it transformed the world. The second thing is we're going to move from strange to stranger. Because as the story continues, we see him running. But he doesn't just run, he really runs. And what's so strange about the situation, what moves from strange to stranger, is that he is running toward an opportunity to be lavishly generous. Some of us are like, well, I got guilted into being generous. I guess I probably should give something away, so I'm, you know, not a sting. But this ethic of running, sprinting toward opportunities to be generous, sprinting toward opportunities to give lavishly to strangers begins here. Now, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, he says as he runs over, do not pass by your servant. Don't stay here for a night. I want to give hospitality to you. I want to care for you. I want to love you. I want to wash your feet. Please let a little water be brought. Wash your feet. Rest yourself under the tree. I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. And here's some caring for the poor. I want to wash your feet because in those days with sandals really covered in dirt. I want to wash you. I want to feed you. I want to have the best customer service you've ever seen. Please don't go to another, another village. Stay here so I can care for you. He doesn't know it's God yet. He is simply loving on and caring for three strangers that came under the tree. But you see, he ran toward it. Now we say, well, okay, what's the big deal? He ran toward it, I guess. And notice he says, I'm just going to give you a morsel of bread. How much is a morsel? Doesn't sound very generous to me. Wait till you see what a morsel and what a small token of hospitality looks like to him. Yeah, let me go to the next verse. I'll give it to you before I tell one part of the story. So Abraham hurried into the tents. 
Oh my goodness, they said they're going to stay. He rushes back. Honey, we got company tonight. Like, I've had this conversation. Why didn't you tell me in advance they were coming? I would have washed the place. I would have cleaned up the place. Look at him. He rushes to her and says, Sarah, quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal. Now, when you think morsel, what do you think? I think, here's a morsel. It's good to have you here. I hope you're not staying long. You know, Ben Franklin said, visitors like fish, they stink after three days. You're starting to smell fishy to me. Three measures of fine wine. Remember that term, three measures. It'll be important in a second. Three measures is 60 pounds. A morsel that he was offering these strangers was, and Abraham was extremely wealthy, I don't want to just be generous to the stranger. I want to be lavishly generous. It's just a morsel of everything God's entrusted me with. Three measures of fine. So they make it. They prepare it. They give it to them. And what happens? Abraham says, that's not enough. He ran again to the herd. He took a tender and good calf. Here's a father running, a father slaughtering a cow to celebrate having somebody come into his home. Does it make you think of anything? A story Jesus told? A father who runs, a father who gives, a father who's lavish. He, he, he slaughters the calf, the, the good calf, gave it to the young man, and he hastened to prepare it. He's preparing it right there before him. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. And here they are enjoying a meal together. Lavish generosity that he ran toward. Now, it doesn't strike us that it's a big deal that he ran. I got a chance in 2012 to uh, visit in Israel. And there's still, in the Bedouin community, several very patriarchal communities that are very much engaged in the culture of this day, even to this day. So we asked the question, we said, is it typical for middle-aged men in a patriarchal society to run? No. I've never run, he said. Like, never? No, very undignified. As a small child, you can. Once you become a man, men don't run. Well, what, what would it take for you to run? If it is embarrassing in your culture, if it goes against your patriarchal society, what would it take for you to run towards something? Mm. If I saw a scorpion about to sting my child. That's it? That's it. It's the only time in which I would get up, pull up, and run. To have someone in that society run toward strangers, run toward being lavishly generous was unheard of. And yet that is what happens when this concept ripples through history and through Christmas. Is that Christians begin to say, I don't want to just be generous. I'm going to run toward opportunities to be lavishly loving toward strangers, lavishly generous toward strangers. In fact, 2012, we're, we're driving through this uh, area of Israel and... Uh, we call a community, a Bedouin community, and we say, hey, 18 people are show- 80 people are showing up, 80. You got 20 minutes notice. Do you want us to stop by on our way? And the family said, oh, please do. If your husband called and said 80 people are coming over, are you going to say, please do? How about next month? How about never? They said, we love that. We show up, they throw the door open, family comes out and embraces us. As we come in, they prepared a meal for us. 
And it was such an honor to be chosen. Her youngest daughter came out and she sat down with a mat. She had a fire going like an upside down stir fry. The fire was now going with a metal lid over top of it. Then she begins to not prepare the meal outside of our presence like we do as Americans, hide the mess in the kitchen. They prepare it right before you. She made the dough. She rolled it out and she rolled it out. And said it was a great honor for her that she had been chosen to be the one that could prepare the food for strangers. She took the piece of uh, pita, I guess she bought a big pizza roll. She flips it on top of the stir fry. And there it cooked on the stir fry. And as it cooked for a while, she would take it and she would flip it over. She cooked the other side. She peeled off that pita and she threw it into the audience like a pizza bread. I remember catching a piece of it and I ripped a piece off and ate it. And I handed it to my neighbor who handed it to his neighbor. And we passed it around, all 80 of us. And as we did that, she made another. As we left that day, he said, hospitality towards strangers, loving people who are different from you, is part of the culture here. They made for us the food they would have eaten tonight. They will not eat tonight because of what they've done. Well, can I give it back? That would be insulting. They would rather go hungry tonight and be hospitable to a stranger than to eat tonight and have not had the opportunity. He said, more than that, all of the neighbors, we looked at the different neighboring villages, all the neighbors are jealous. They wish that they had a chance to host and give to strangers. This is not a family like, well, they got taken for a deal. <laughs> They're not eating tonight. Eighty Americans came and pigged out. Whew, what a fool. Now the neighbors are like, I wish we could have run toward that. And so here in the story, we see a, a, a patriarchal middle Eastern man running toward an opportunity to be generous with 60 pounds measures of wheat to these strangers. Now we come to the New Testament where God will again appear as a man. In the book of Matthew, look what it says. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This son of Abraham was the promise that God would bring a forgiver, a lover with a new kind of strange love, a stranger love that loves not just the Israelites, but Gentiles as well. A stranger kind of love that would actually die for the Romans and look at people crucifying him and say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's strange stuff. It's a strange kind of love. It's a generous kind of love. And while before he appeared as three men under a tree, now the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you, marry your wife for that which is conceived in her is not just a baby. It's not just a stranger. It's God himself dwelling in her and among her. Jesus is born and many people like these strangers in Abraham's story don't recognize him as God in the flesh. They just think it's a strange story of a man born in a, a small little town called Bethlehem. And yet. Jesus one time asked, hey, what's the kingdom of heaven like? What's this message all about that you want to do and that you come to earth to do? And Jesus says, oh, you know what the kingdom of heaven's like? It's like a piece of leaven that you put into some wheat. How much wheat does he choose? The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman, to- a woman took and hid in, there it is again, three measures of meal until it's leavened. It only takes a little bit of leaven to transform an entire piece of pita, an entire piece of dough. In the same way, I've come to bring a whole new ethic of generosity and forgiveness and love to the world. And just a little bit of this new message, just a little bit of what I've come to say, and it can transform the whole loaf. But he could have picked any number, two measures, one measure. He specifically picked three measures to remind us of where it all began. 
when Sarah chose to be lavishly generous with 60 pounds of flour to strangers as a way of giving to God. And God said in the same way, you can in your culture, in your neighborhood, and your family be the leaven. When everybody else is crabby and arguing and you can have grace towards strangers. You can have love towards strangers. You can care for those who are not like you. And Jesus will eventually tell a story of a prodigal father. The prodigal son, but it's really about a bad Middle Eastern father who runs. Oh my goodness, he's running toward prodigal sons and embracing them and slaughtering calves. Because Jesus is talking about the story of Abraham and Sarah. And many of us are skeptical. We got doubts about the Bible. We got doubts about Jesus. We got doubts about lots of stuff. But even if you doubt those things, let me tell you, if it was true, I think it is. And if history records the record right, and I think it does, the ideas of the Bible, the ideas that God showed us through Abraham and incarnated in Jesus have transformed history. I read the story of a guy, listen to the story actually of a guy named Cary Grant. Jerry Grant, uh, not Cary Grant, Jerry Grant. Jerry is uh, was a skeptic, agnostic, married to a woman who had faith. He appreciated the differences. But something happened one day when he began to wrestle with, what if the Bible isn't just a story, what if it's a story of truth? And notice what happens when the idea that God would be generous to him begins to implant his heart. He begins to change from the inside out. Let's watch. I was born in Wembley. In the early 60s, as a family, we had very little or no money. So I didn't dream big dreams when I was a child. Life at home was tough. My parents were divorced when I was three. I'm dyslexic. I can't process sounds, so school was a struggle. So I guess as a kid, that's most of life. Um, but I'm not dyslexic with numbers. Numbers were really clear. Studying with no cash at all, money was, was everything to me. When we started the business in 1981, I had no idea about the toy industry. A toy shop came on the market in Amersham. We uh, managed to convince the bank that we were a good bet. Gary has always been well known for being very enthusiastic. Driven, I guess, to succeed. Success was a main goal, making money, bigger and better things was really the only objective in being in business. So in 10 years we had three shops and now 35 years later we have 120 stores and several franchises around the world. So in the first 10 years of being in business, I'm not sure we had too many company values. I think it was all about making money. about three years I was an extremely antagonistic non-Christian husband. I didn't mind her believing what she wanted to believe but I felt we were living in a modern world and life is all about business, making money and actually this old-fashioned mindset um, was a bit like a history lesson and it was irrelevant. Just as we were about to open our third shop, Kath had bought me a ticket for a Christian men's breakfast at her church and I went along and the speaker at this men's breakfast was just talking about a relationship that he had with Jesus. 
and how the Holy Spirit can influence our life, guide us, can turn situations around. I, thought, I sat there with disbelief thinking, well, if any of this is true, there must be something in this. As I was 33, I'd never been to church by myself before ever. And I'm at the back thinking I'm quite successful, in a big house, a couple of Mercedes cars, in the back of church crying. And that was, that was the turning point. I mean, it's like, what on earth had happened? And God just got me. So here's a guy who begins to wrestle with this and says, if it's true, and I never believed it was true, it's worth investigating. It's worth the idea that God would come to earth to give us a message. Why would I not at least look into that? I'll tell you the second part of the story in a moment. So it's stranger that when God gets a hold of your heart, you want to give and love people differently. People who disagree with you. That the strangest thing is still to come. The strangest part of the passage is what happens next. It's strangest because Sarah, his wife, is going to become a lover. Loving of God, loving of her husband, loving of her family. At a time when she thought it was almost over. She's 98 years old. She's had a lot of difficult circumstances. And maybe this Christmas, you may not be at that age, but you feel like this Christmas is already not going right. My family, there's people disagreeing with each other, not talking to each other. We're trying to figure out who can sit where at the table without making a mess over it. We're trying to figure out, okay, so-and-so, don't mention such-and-such. Or maybe this is the season, it's your first Christmas where somebody's missing. Mom's not going to be at the table. Your kids are in college, and so they're not going to be home. Or maybe they've gone off and have their own family now. And there's a sense of mourning or loss. That's where we find ourselves in this part of the story, is that Sarah gave up her dream. She's been barren for 98 years. She's longed to have a family. She's longed to have the marriage she wanted and the family she wanted and the legacy she wanted, but she's not going to get any of it. She's going to sit around the kitchen table with her husband and just be sad this season. And yet... As he runs, Abraham runs with his 60 pounds of, uh, of flour and they begin to eat together. It's there that God then, through this angel, appearing as a man, speaks to him and says, God has a message for you, Abram. What is it? By this time next year, Sarah wants to know what they're talking about. Maybe she's listening in behind a tree. We don't know, but she's listening in. They're in the tent. She begins to hear. By this time next year, God has a promise. Remember he told you you'd have a family and from your descendants would come the Messiah and the greatest forgiver and fixer of all time. Yes. By this time next year, your wife will be pregnant with child. <laughs> right, right, right. I'm going to be pregnant. That's kind of a dark voice for Sarah, isn't it? Oh, I'm going to be... This cynical laugh comes out of her. This dark laugh comes out of her. Not a chance. My life is over. My chance is gone. God's ability to use me is over. I don't know what Abraham heard, what he was eating, what he was drinking several years ago. We are not having a baby. And certainly the crazy people here now, we're not having a baby now. And here are her actual words with the piratey voice. She says, after I've grown old. Very cynical, the Hebrew construction of this. Very cynical, very sardonic, very life's been hard on me. After I've grown old, you show up. Shall I have pleasure again, my Lord? 
So he's like saying, sir, in those days, my Lord, being my husband, being old too. And what's dripping from the Hebrew, which she speaks in, is cynicism and anger and frustration and the death of dreams and the death of hopes in here. You see, because in her society, one, she's got health issues. And if you know as you're getting older or you're caring for somebody who's older, those health issues just drain everything out of you, don't they? Caring for somebody long term. She's caring for a husband who's over 100. Her dreams have died. Her family has died. Her health is failing. She's barren. Her social status, which is based on how many kids you have so you can pass on the legacy, is over. And where she says, shall I have pleasure also, in the Hebrew construction, it seems to imply that she and her husband, the marriage is not what they want. They haven't been intimate in a very long time. And God, refers to him here then as the Lord. It's still one of these men appearing as God, but God speaks to him, having heard her cynical laugh, and says, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? That's not exactly what she said, is it? Look at how God reworded her phrase. He took out the, have I grown old and cynical? He took out the, I'm never going to have pleasure again. He took out the cynicism of my Lord's an old man. He's an old geezer. He's long past taking me to the bedroom. And here's what God is doing so tenderly to a woman who thinks her life is over, that she has no purpose, that she has no meaning. God is very tenderly saying, let me extract the poison of cynicism and doubt and anger from you this season. And then let me ask you this. Is anything too hard for God? It's not over. In fact, it's just the beginning. I'm going to teach you how to love me in a way that's going to overcome all that doubt and cynicism in your life. I'm going to teach you how to love your husband in a way that's going to overcome all that bitterness of, of those years of disconnect. I'm going to teach you that you can love a child even when you gave up on having a child. And into this desperate holiday moment, this desperate season of life, God extracts poison and interjects hope into their lives. And Sarah becomes one of the people mentioned in the book of Hebrews as somebody we should look up to. Despite spending 90 years in cynicism and lying and cheating and all kinds of horrible things she does to Hagar, she has a moment coming face to face with the grace of God that's able to extract the poison and venom and put in hope and joy and changes her life. That's the strangest thing of all. A 98-year-old pregnant woman walking through Walmart. Pampers. Depend undergarments. And yet she, at a time she thought her life was over and God had no purpose for her, she goes from being over to being a lover. Now, what if this strange, stranger and strangest kind of love began to transform us? That we became lavishly generous, lavishly loving. Not toward people who always agree with us, but to strangers with strange habits and strange ways of thinking to us. I think the takeaway from this passage is that. What if this season we picked the strangest places and the strangest people to show this strange kind of unconditional love? Now, when you think about your family, when you think about who you work with, I bet you, you can think of some strange people. I know I can. And what if God said this holiday season where you'd be irritated or mad or angry at them, what if you 
Receive some strange love from me that I loved you when you were a stranger, that I forgave you when you didn't deserve it, when I was merciful to you when you didn't deserve it. And what if you shared that strange love to the strangest people in your life? How might it change your life? How might it change family dynamics? The book of Hebrews says it this way, written again after Jesus' death. The book of Hebrews says, here's the thing, guys. Don't forget to entertain your family. No. Don't forget to entertain strangers. Yeah. Don't forget to entertain strangers. For by doing so, or by so doing, you may entertain angels unaware. That's just not some pithy little phrase. He's actually likening back to what happened with Abraham. Abraham loved God by loving a stranger. He ran toward opportunities to be lavishly generous toward a stranger. And God says, whenever you give or love me, it can come in the form of loving the strangers among us. See, normal love is going to be easy to find this year. Normal generosity is going to be easy to find this year. But God is challenging us to say, what if around your holiday season, around your holiday table, what if you... Shows some strange love where you refuse to be baited into that conversation. You just refuse to start a fight. That's strange. What if more than that, you began to pray for your enemies, pray for people you disagree with? What if you began to be kind to the ungrateful among you? Love those who feel entitled. What if you began to care for those who are critical? What if you began to be lavishly generous in your concern, both financially, of your time, treasure, and talents, toward those who don't even say thanks? Now, that would be a strange love around the family. What if more than that, what if you began to say, God, will you change my heart toward that relative, toward that friend, toward that coworker, toward my boss? If you would transform my heart, I don't want to just fake it till I make it. I want to see them through your eyes. I want to imagine that this might be you giving me an opportunity to have the strangest love of all. Make me the kind of lover that loves unconditionally, that loves with forgiveness. In the most difficult of circumstances. Several years ago, we uh, guy wrote an article in uh, Cincinnati Magazine and just sort of trashed Christians, trashed their idiocy, their check your, you know, check your brain at the door. They never thought about the problem of evil. They never looked at the evidence for the Bible. How, how can smart people be so dumb? So I asked him to lunch after I read the article. I said, I really enjoyed your article. You're one of the people I was making fun of. I didn't say I agreed with your article. I said I enjoyed it. It brought up great questions that I think are worthy of conversation. I said, would you be willing to come to our church and ask me all those hard questions on stage in front of everybody? Like a debate? No, no, no. You just ask me hard questions and I'll do my best chance to, to celebrate it or to answer it. He let us take a video team into his house where he read his whole article. Where he trashed all Christians. We put it on video. We showed that at the, at the, the Sunday service that day. At the end of it, Still filled with cynicism and anger and bitterness. <laughs> I came up on stage. I said, the, the guy who wrote this article is here today. and We want to welcome him to the stage. And we gave him an arousing welcome and love and appreciation. He came up and asked me the hardest questions. He's come back several times since. And the one thing he said when he left is, I'll tell you this, I still don't agree with you. But I thought all Christians were hypocrites, all of them were judgmental, and all of them were idiots. I felt so warm and so welcomed by your church and by you. A lot of pastors wrote letters to the editor about why I was wrong. Nobody paid for lunch. And nobody was respectful or empathetic. 
How we entertain strangers is how we entertain God. Let's go back to Jerry. Jerry begins to wrestle with this idea of Jesus being in a relationship with him. He doesn't become less driven. He doesn't lose his edge. Quite the opposite. Notice what happens is that Jerry begins to say, I want to be the best businessman I can, and I want to rethink all of what I'm doing through the lens of how can I inspire the people I work for, the people who are customers, the community I'm in, how can I be lavishly generous and loving through my company to the world around me? And look at how he transforms people's hearts in the same way that God had transformed his. Let's watch. When I became a Christian in 1991, we had to look at this whole area of company values. How are we going to treat our customers, our suppliers, and our staff differently? And how could I put into play on an everyday basis what I now believed? It completely changed the way I approached business. When Cass suggested that we ought to consider giving, that was, that was a bit of a challenge. As a person who grew up with nothing, the concept of giving money away, it, it, that wasn't on my radar. The thing is about money, it's probably the one thing that we might want to hold on to the most. And when we can trust God and we can start to see the joy and the difference that, that money can make, actually once you start you just keep going. It's, it's almost as though life opened up, it just became so much more exciting. I knew that generosity was part of my spiritual journey. We want to be really intentional about our charitable giving. And when our company budget is put together every year, we have an expense line called donations. But it's a built-in cost. Rent, rates, labour, they're built-in costs. So are donations and charitable giving. I felt that it was important for me to try and facilitate wider generosity. And we introduced, about five years ago, payroll giving. Payroll giving is a way for the staff of the business to give money to charity through their monthly wage packet. Maybe this is the first time they've ever given to a charity on a regular basis. I wanted to encourage my staff to be generous. So I made a decision that we would match their monthly donation to a charity that they chose. And today, 45% of the entertainer's staff give monthly to a charity of their choice. I think uh, the business is a great opportunity to show generosity and I think if people see it, they can see that it's actually quite easy to do and once you encourage people to get on that journey, then they want to join in and they want to do it. Would you like to donate 40 pence to Great Ormond Street Hospital? It's green for yes, red for no. One of the most exciting things we've launched at The Entertainer is pennies. Pennies is an amazing charity um, that we, we run in store. Basically, customers come into the store they make a purchase. If they are using credit cards, we offer them the option to round up to the nearest town. That money actually then gets donated to, for us, it's Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital. Something set up that's so easy, they just have to hit one button and that's it. They then become part of generosity. The average donation over the last four and a half years we've been running pennies in the stores is 39p, but it's added up to an unbelievable 1.2 million pounds. And the most amazing thing is, customers in the shop compliment us for doing it, and yet we're taking their money off them. It is amazing. When I look back at my legacy, will I be more proud of the business that we've built, the money that we've made, or the people's lives in which we've been able to impact?
businesses have got a tremendous potential to be able to make a difference to society. So we're a toy retailer, we earn our money from families and we, wherever we can, we give back to children um, so we can make a difference in children's lives. You know, it is hard to give away something you don't have. And yet God says, the takeaway right now, you're thinking, this is the big plug. This is what you ask for money for the church. No, the, the plug is get close to God. When you get close to God, His attributes flow through you. If you've run out of patience, get close to the God who's the source of patience. And you'll have access to some more for some relatives. If you're having trouble being generous and loving and patient with other people, get close to the God who is generous and loving to other people. And then ask yourself, like Jerry did, what would my life look like? What would my influence look like? What would my business look like? How would it affect my values, my relationships, my pocketbook? So I'm going to close this in prayer, but here's my prayer. That you would get close to God and He would give you what you need to transform the world starting from this place in this moment today. Father, thank you for this uh, great chance this morning to reflect on your love and your generosity. God, I ask that you would continue to come deeper and deeper into our heart as we kick the tires on doubts and questions. God, that we could be part of your grand story of transforming the world with the kind of grace and tolerance and humility and generosity that the world has never seen before. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here today. We appreciate it. You did come prepared to give us some offering boxes. And if you want to give to our giving tree, there's a giving tree with some families out by the fireplace.